Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson. I'm still Brad Gullickson. <laughs> Are you saying that because this is our fourth take? Uh, correct. And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four color realm. This episode we're going back to school with hindsight and morph as seen in the Marvel comic series Generation X. Issues 1 through 12 written by Christina Strain and we're applying the normal bar from authors Christiana Northrup Dr. Pepper Schwartz, and Dr. James Witt to their relationship woes. And no, I I realize I did say Christina Strain a little weird, but I'm not doing another take because you're mocking me. Uh, Podcasting is hard. I'm not mocking you. How could I possibly mock you? I am wearing a baseball cap because I can no longer stand the length of my hair. I cannot podcast without putting uh, putting the hair out of my face. I got to get those bangs away. Brad and I have made the decision that we're not going to get our hair cut until after we've both been vaccinated or after each of us has been vaccinated. And part of that is just like we want to keep uh, do everything that we can sure, to sure. not spread the virus. Correct. Though we could put a mask on and go get our hair done. And I think that's a totally reasonable thing to do. Especially if it's something that drives you crazy. I hear you, Lisa, but I've reached the point, it's been over a year since I've had a haircut. Mm -hmm. And my hair has never been this long in my life. And so there is something exciting about that. Even if when I put this ball cap on, I look like the worst image of Kurt Russell (laughs) from the 1980s, the mullet, is really accentuated right now. And I would never allow anyone to take a photo of me uh, as I'm podcasting at this table right now. But so there is something exciting about having long hair for the first time. I also like the idea of having like pandemic hair, you know, like people grow pandemic beards or whatever. Um, I can't grow a proper beard. If I grow a beard, it's just all neck beard. And I mean, that's way worse of a look than, you know, a mullet. So this is, this is my, this is my celebratory hair it's my morning hair i think it's It's, just like it's something to mark the passage of time yeah considering that our days are so very much the same without going to film club and going out to restaurants and all of that stuff so it's good to have some kind of physical manifestation of time passing yeah yeah and and that's and that's what that's what's on top of my head right now Uh, about a week ago i reached a point where i could not type on my computer without pulling it back and putting a skull cap on. And and today's the first day where I, I just could not sit down at this table and record with my hair free. Now, you could technically tie your hair back and have a ponytail. Yes. I that could. is an option. Uh, and I'm, I'm okay with that. I don't think I'm at like proper ponytail length yet. Because of the front of your hair? Y- yes. And, and, you know, if I if I make a ponytail, the ponytail is not, really impressive right now it's 
the hair is not long enough to have an impressive ponytail. It's a it's a weak looking ponytail. But I'm just saying the function of keeping your hair out of your face. Yeah. Another option would be a hair band, like mm-hmm. you know, like the ones mm-hmm. that I wear to go to the gym. Back I, in the I mean, days, I went to the and gym. And we have experimented with that already. You have? Yeah, well, you you tied it back for me that one time. With oh the no, hair band. I'm saying with like a headband, so that it's like a like a oh. elastic, stretchy, where you just kind of pull it over and then it pulls your hair back. Do, do I do I do you think I could pull off like a proper headband? Not as a look, but I also <laughs> think that like the mullet and. Um, baseball cap look is also something that when I married you, I did not sign up for. Like right now across the table, you're not enjoying the view. That's what you're saying. I always enjoy the view. Your your face brings me joy, but it's definitely a look. You know what brings me joy, Lisa? This is a transition. Generation X by Christina Strain. This comic book series was so adorable. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it so much. We're just talking about hindsight and morph, though he's never actually called morph in this series, not one time. I think he's only called morph in the credits pages, maybe? Because he's referred to just mostly as Benji, right? Yeah, and Nathaniel even makes a comment at the end of the second volume where he says that uh, Benjamin refuses to go by a code name. But that's neither here nor there. What I love about Generation X is there are so many cute couples in this book. And it was very hard for me to focus on just these two characters because my heart is bursting with love for Chamber and Jubilee. And this could be... Uh, our longest episode yet. This episode is going to be 14 and a half hours long. When I was looking for a couple to cover in our third X-Couple series, previously on CBCC, we covered Shatterstar and Richter and Storm and Callisto before taking a break to chat with Abraham Reisman about his new book, Stan Lee, True Believer. I picked up Generation X because I loved the idea of covering iBoy and Nature Girl in Who this series. Who are also adorable. Which are fantastic, but then what you realize is that the romance of this book really is between Benji and Nathaniel. And it is entirely so sweet. And like, I do feel like these 12 issues are the perfect batch of comics for what we do on this podcast. So I'm very excited to get into this episode, but we should probably talk a little bit about Generation X as a concept, as a team. Give a little context before we dive into things. Oh, yes, of course, always. I remember Generation X being a big deal when it originally launched in 1994. Uh, In 1991, a few years earlier, The New Mutants, which was like the X-Men's first attempt to rebrand with younger X-Men back in the 1980s, that morphed, pun intended, into this incredibly popular X-Force series, uh, you know, made famous by Rob Liefeld, right? Uh, With no New Mutants at the time, uh, they needed a new teenager team, so Generation X was the answer. The original setup involved the White Queen, Emma Frost, and Banshee forming their own mutant academy in Massachusetts. They were not part of Charles Xavier's organization at all. The first members were Jubilee, Chamber, Gaia, Husk, Monet Croix, Mondo, Penance, Skin, and Sink. The comic was the brainchild of Scott Lobdell and Chris Bocciolo, and I gotta say, the art super holds up. I read through it the other night via Marvel Unlimited, and Bocciolo is, even though he's still in 
his early stages of ascendancy, it's more than solid. And for the time, it's absolutely wild. Unfortunately, both creators left the series in 1997, leaving uh, Larry Hama and Terry Dodson to take over. The comic ain't terrible, but it was on Hama to wrap up a lot of these storylines originally proposed by Lobdell, and fans at the time did not love where he went with the plot. Oh well, that's comics, folks. Uh, the title was eventually canceled in 2001, just as Grant Morrison was coming on board for new X-Men and Chris Claremont was getting kicked over to Extreme X-Men. Uh, 16 years later, however, that's when Generation X relaunched with a second volume. These 12 issues we're here to discuss today. It was part of yet another X-Men rebranding, this one called Resurrection. Uh, get it, Lisa? Or instead of Resurrection, it's Resurrection. Are you sure that wouldn't also be resurrection. resurrection? I think it's probably still just Resurrection. <laughs> I like yours, though. It makes it sound like a fast car or something. Resurrection. Uh, just a few years ago, there was a lot of speculation that Marvel had downplayed their X-Men titles because Marvel Studios did not hold the licensing rights for X-Men movies. Marvel Comics was accused of focusing on their Avengers and other characters while their X-Men books and even their Fantastic Four books were mostly ignored or left to rot on the vine. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I can see why that makes sense for a lot of people. Uh, however, with the absorption of 20th Century Fox under the Disney umbrella, Marvel could reassert the radness of their X-Men line and that was Resurrection's mission. <laughs> uh, in reality, it was more of a stopgap before the major X-Men overhaul that would be House of X and Powers of Ten, which brought on Dawn of X, the era of X-Men titles we're currently all living with. The era that killed this run of Generation yeah. X, which hurts me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, like I read a little of Resurrection business. I'm not going to stop Resurrection. I'm just going to keep saying it uh, when it came out. But though, at least the core titles, and it just did not sit well with me. And I never bothered with this version of Generation X at the time. And boy, do I regret that now. Christina Strange Generation X is one of the best underrated Marvel Comics series in recent memory, and as much as I love Dawn of X and Reign of X and everything that Hickman and company are doing right now, I, I, I like Generation X even more. Generation X is everything I want from an X-Men comic book. And these two volumes seem to be setting up a really fun, exciting, different, cute, X-Men story and the fact that it's not really continued is it's a, such a bummer. I hope I hope we can get back to these relationships in the future. Strain's a cool writer with a fascinating career path. Uh, she first entered the industry as a colorist working for CrossGen. Oh, CrossGen, we miss you. Uh, Lisa, you probably don't even know anything about CrossGen. Correct. Uh, but you would really like at least one of their titles, Ruse, which is kind of like this Sherlock Holmesian series with some fantasy twists to it. Ooh, fun. Uh, but whatever. Strain starts with CrossGen. Uh, and then after that, she did a mess load of Marvel comics. We're talking Runaways, Thor, Wolverine, and Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane. Aww. We freaking love that book. And uh, we, uh, a local author of the 
Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane's novels lives not too far from us, actually. Yeah, that's right. That's, and that's we super ran cool. into her. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Strain transitioned into writing with her webcomic, The Fox Sister, and that led into her writing an issue of the Civil War II anthology series, Choosing Sides. Then over to Generation X, and she became a staff writer on sci-fi channel TV show, The Magicians, the, based on the Lev Grossman book. A series of novels that we sold a lot of while we were both working at Barnes & Noble, but I never got around to reading them. I always wanted to. Yeah, me neither. But we're not talking magicians today, Lisa. We're talking statisticians. Ooh. The normal bar, that's our love guru book to pair with Generation X. How are we going to help Hindsight and Morth with it? That remains to be seen. We are talking the New York Times best-selling book, The Normal Bar, the surprising secrets of happy couples and what they reveal about creating a new normal in your relationship. A book about bettering relationships through the super squishy science of statistics <laughs> by Christiana Northrup, Dr. Pepper Schwartz, and Dr. James Witt. The Normal Bar is based on an over 1,300 question survey with over 70,000 participants and a resulting 1.7 million data points. The team behind The Normal Bar claims that by using these data points, they can present the reader with a normal bar spectrum of what other couples' relationships look like so that you can make a more informed decision when creating a new normal in your relationship. Last episode, I listed some of my annoyances with the normal <laughs> bar that I feel delegitimize their findings and diminish any value they may have by the way they are presented in this book. And this week, you've now solved all those problems. Uh, stay Stay tuned. <laughs> Namely, they subscribe to a gender binary as well as only heterosexual and homosexual relationships, and they rarely cite sources other than the findings of their own survey when it comes to interpreting their data or giving actionable advice. So some of their ideas of splitting people into different demographics is a little close-minded and archaic, and any information they give outside of survey results that has not been cited should be taken with a bolder-sized grain of salt. But at least we can extrapolate some meaning out of the data they do give us, right? I gave the methodology index a close reading for this ep, and uh, I don't know, y'all. Probably not. Statistics based on random samples are given with a margin of error, a percentage range of inaccuracy, since a random sample taken from a population will still not perfectly represent a population. The normal bar book only uses the phrase margin of error in the methodology appendix to say essentially, the larger a sample is, the smaller the margin of error. They give the example that a sample size of 1,000 has a margin of error of plus or minus 3%, while a sample size of 400 has a margin of error plus or minus 5%, implying that their sample size of over 70,000 people makes up for the lack of randomness in their sample. But the normal bar never gives a specific margin of error for their findings because they can't for two reasons I'm gonna cover on this episode. One, they don't have a, a random sample. And two, not every question is answered by every single participant. Yeah, that really throws things off. The random sample thing we knew going in. We understood from the introduction of this book that the participants in the normal bar sample are self-selected and took the survey because they were interested in the results. 
It doesn't hurt to remind ourselves that when we are reading statistics from the normal bar that are stated like this in a quote, 74% of the general population are extremely attracted to their partners. They don't mean the general population of the entire world. They mean the people who took the test. Exactly. This book should read like an episode of The Family Feud. Percentage (laughs) of men who self-report that they occasionally sleep in the nude? Survey says... 38%. Oh, man, I would love to do a couple series where we use The Family Feud as our guru. Could that work? I think we could. I think it would take a lot of watching of The Family Feud, and I'm here to do that homework. Brad, if you want to watch The Family Feud, just say so. I want to watch The Family Feud. (laughs) But we can guesstimate that about half the sample size of 70,000 people self-identified as male, which is 35,000. Hey, Siri. What is 38% of 35,000? The answer is 13,300. So that is 13,300 self-reporting nude dudes, right? (laughs) Wrong. This quiz has 1,300 questions. The normal bar reports that in April 2011 to November 2011, which was their most intense phase of data collection, the respondents... Averaged completing nearly 100 questions. More than half answered at least 65. 10% averaged 170 questions or more. Here's a a fun quote. One 36-year-old married woman who also worked full-time answered 670 questions. Was that me? Did I go back in time? (laughs) I was just thinking that you took that. That's you. They're talking about you. But not one of the participants answered every single question or took the entire quiz. Mm. Not even time traveling me. So we don't know the sample size for any one statistic. All right. So it throws everything into question. Got it. Huge boulder of salt, like you said. All right. I'm willing to keep going. I know your next question, Brad. How are we going to apply this book to our sweeties, Benjamin Deeds, and Nathaniel Carver. Now that I've pointed out that odds are the statistics may not even be applicable anywhere outside of the normal bar book. We're going to use it as a springboard to talk about their relationships and our relationships. Because like our podcast, I strongly suspect that the normal bar book is for ha-has and not a resource for facts. Okay, I can appreciate that. And, you know, like, I do think that there is good stuff in this book. We've had a lot of off-mic conversations about the normal bar. I've, I have I appreciate it, even if it's not the most scientific thing. Yeah, the idea of going like, well, what are other couples doing? Yeah. And could that work for yeah, me? Yeah, I, I, I think that's, I think there's value there. But before we can even talk about that, Lisa, we have now entered... The words of affirmation. Affirmations. I should really find some time to record I, that properly. I love your version of it. <laughs> I don't think we need any replacement. But for our first time listeners, Lisa, should we explain what the heck this words of affirmation segment of our show is? 
The words of affirmation are a way that we give back to our new and upgrading Patreon subscribers. These are affirmations that I collect and curate in my own daily life. Like, I think I got one of these from the You Made It Weird podcast and the other one from the Brown Vegan podcast. Just random. I mean, I yeah, I love it. And I mean, you do use them. I mean, you will scrawl them all over our apartment. And it was something that I initially scoffed at, but I now find myself like whispering, whispering these affirmations alone in the dark uh, and making myself feel better. Yeah. And, and so these are for our Patreon subscribers, but if you're not a Patreon subscriber, you know, you can still take these affirmations and apply them and use them and gain some sort of self-worth out of them. I, I have a note in my phone. Yeah. That's just affirmations that I go back to whenever I feel like I need a little mental uh, pick me up. Pick yeah. So we've up. got two patron members that we need to give a shout out this week. Uh, Jason Ayers and Boba Fetish. Boba Fetish is new and Jason Ayers has gone from the dearly beloved $5 tier to the $10 happily ever after tier. Oh, thank you and so much. And we just sent out a bunch of care packages filled with all kinds of goodies, stickers, magnets, and comics to that uh, tier group. So, and Jason was kind enough to post that package on his Instagram and uh, it looks good with a filter on it. Go check it out. So let's get to the words of affirmation. Jason Ayers. I tend and befriend every feeling that arises. Boba fetish. Today, I love myself. Tomorrow, I love myself. And the next day, I will forever love myself. That was nice. But we also recognize that it's not financially feasible for a lot of folks to join the Patreon, and we would never demand that you do so. There are also other ways you can show your love for the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. Like leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Each review helps us gain a little more traction in the algorithm and get us into more and more ears. Uh, We got a succinct but satisfying five-star review last week from the time-traveling madman. Lisa, why don't you give that a read? Okay. Uh, Title, I Love the Twist. And here's the entire review. Engaging relationship talk with a comic book twist. Lisa, were you surprised by the twist? Uh, By his use of the word twist? Well, no, like, I thought the twist in the review would be how the relationship talk is applied to comic books, but for the time-traveling madman, it's actually that the comic book talk is applied to the relationship talk. Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess that is a surprising And I know sometimes you feel like the comic book side of this show gets a little more traction, a little more attention than the the relationship stuff, but for the time-traveling madman, they're here for the relationship talk. And, uh, you know, there you go. That's some validation. They're so welcome. That's some words of affirmation for us that we also always need. So thank you. So much to the traveling time traveling madman. If you would like to leave us a five star review, we would really appreciate it. All righty then, Lisa. I'm still trying to perfect my Ace Venture. (laughs) All righty then. It's time to go to the head of the class with Generation X, Volume 2, Issues 1 through 87, Psych 1 through 12, because Marvel ain't fooling us with their wacky legacy numbering. These comics were originally published between May of 2017 and February of 2018. Every issue is written by Christina Strain, but we've got several pencilers, including Almacar Pina, Alberto Albuquerque, Eric Coda, and Martin Marazzo. 
The issues are inked by all of the named pencilers with the added assistance of Roberto Poggi on issues three and four. The comic is colored by Felipe Sobrero, J. David Ramos, uh, Chris Sotomayor, and Nolan Woodard. Uh, all the letters are penciled by VCs Clayton Cowles, and the covers come courtesy of Terry and Rachel Dodson. If I butchered any of those names, and by if, I mean, I'm when, sorry. When, I'm yeah. sorry I butchered all those names. Um, you know, I, I podcasting, like I said at the beginning, it's hard, and I still suck at pronunciations. I apologize. Uh, but here is the general plot synopsis of Generation X, issues 1 through 12, courtesy of Goodreads. May I? Yeah, of course. And I'm just going to read volume 1, because... Okay. We're going to talk about volume one, so we don't need to set up volume two. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. The Xavier Institute for Mutant Education and Outreach has opened its doors and is now ready to foster the next generation of heroes and diplomats. But this time around, the X-Men recognize an unfortunate truth. Not all mutants are created equal. Ooh, rude. Some mutants are just not made to fight sentinels or serve as ambassadors on behalf of their kind. Okay, that's a pretty good point. Some mutants will be lucky just to survive another day in a world that hates and fears them. These are the students who should be kept out of harm's way when the purifiers target the campus. And who better to mentor mutant kind's lovable losers through the life out of the limelight than perpetual sidekick Jubilee? But will her Generation X survive the experience? I think that's a pretty good synopsis. I know we love to give a jab to these summaries on this podcast. Uh, you know, sometimes publicists, marketers, they just don't know how to promote their work. But this one's pretty good. And yeah. I love the reference to surviving the experience, which is a callback to Uncanny X-Men number 139 when Kitty Pride first joined the team. And on the cover, you see all like the X-Men in this collage doing all these exciting, adventurous things. And then stuck in the middle is Kitty Pride. And it says, welcome to the X-Men, Kitty Pride. Hope you survive the experience. And, you know, at this point, especially here in Generation X, the X-Men as a concept is firmly established. It's a proper school in a way that it wasn't a school when Kitty Pride joined up, right? Like, yes, Professor X did originate it back in the 60s with Leah Ditko. That era was a school, but then it became something else and Claremont adjusted it into something else beyond that. And then they kind of brought this that whole concept back with New Mutants and the original brand of Generation X and this brand of Generation X. I love the concept of Generation X being about the remedial class of X-Men, though it seems contrary to their mission for me because like the whole metaphor- X-Men's mission? Yeah, like the whole metaphor of the X-Men is like, what makes you different actually makes you extraordinary and special and useful. And so the idea of um, having some kind of, how they decided who was going to be in the remedial class, if they had some kind of like entrance exam or something, and for them to decide, okay, we know your destiny. You're not going to be an X-Men. You're not going to be a diplomat. You're going to be someone we're just going to give like the basic sure. coping mechanisms and then we're going to throw you back. I remember like when I was in the classroom having that issue of like how do we meet each student's needs without creating these striations of this is a student who needs accelerated learning. This is a student who needs extra support. You yeah. know, it's always like this kind of 
balancing act of going like, okay, you are a person who needs extra help, but we don't want the rest of your peers to know like that. And that's something that's like modern. Like when back in the eighties, when we were in school, like they were not shy about going like, Hey, we're going to split you into reading groups. These are the foxes. These are the tortoises. Like good luck. I mean, but that's the thing. That's why I like what's happening here because to me, this reminds me of my high school experience when you would have the GT kids and everybody else. And so like if the X-Men are the GT kids, mm -hmm. then, you know, Generation X, this group are, are not the qualified students. Although this comic is strange because like the X-Men also feel like a military unit, mm -hmm. you know, like they are going into battle, you know, they are. Um, showing the worth of mutantdom uh, through action and violence, whereas these kids, I guess their skills don't um, qualify them for combat, although, yeah, clearly they do. But it also, they're also trying to, uh, uh, like, um, support students' emotional needs, where Roxy, she has yes. some amazing talents, but for some reason they've decided that Despite her desperately wanting to be an X-Men, she doesn't have the emotional fortitude. And so that's speaking to what you were saying about as a teacher is recognizing talents of students, but also knowing that they need to grow. But those students might not know they need to grow or mature. And so the students find themselves in this frustrating place where the teachers aren't necessarily being 100% honest mm -hmm. with them of why they're there in the first place. Yeah. And that creates conflict. And that's why I like this version of Generation X even more than the previous Generation X, the previous New Mutants, and the previous X-Men style of schooling. That's one fun aspect of the X-Men is like every time you bring on a new class, they always have a new perspective and something to teach the older generation. And it gives a writer like Christina Strain an opportunity to apply modern ideas around schooling to the concept of a mutant class. But I think we should get into our couple right now. Yes, we're, please. We're talking Nathaniel and Benji. And we're, you know, like we said, we're going to focus on their relationship as seen in these 12 issues we might talk a little bit about other characters, but we're going to be hopping along to the most significant moments in this comic as regards to Benji and Nathaniel. So if you're here for the Quentin Choir talk, uh, <laughs> you know, we might cover Quentin in the future, but we're not going to focus too much on him today. Brad is saying this for my benefit as much as <laughs> your benefit. Stay on target, Lisa. Don't get distracted by the other cute couples in this book. We can talk about them, Lisa. We just can't focus on them. Our focus is Benji and Nathaniel. So let's jump right to Nathaniel and Benji's meet cute. It is the first day of school for Nathaniel. He's arrived at the Xavier Institute, and he's a little bit nervous and distracted. And he accidentally runs into this, bumps into this redheaded girl, and he accidentally sees her entire past. He has psychometry or psychometry, which is when you have skin-to-skin -skin contact, he can read your feelings, he can see your past memories he, like, psychically. He experiences your past. Yeah, and so he, this is Phoebe, one of the midwitch cuckoos. She was one of five 
quintuplets. And what well, the vision he sees is the death of one of them. Actually, two died way back in our new X-Men. We covered that run in uh, our very first set of episodes. Uh, and so it's like, it's an invasive thing, right? Like he sees the greatest tragedy of her life upon meeting her, upon bumping into her. She takes it pretty well, though. She's like, hey, cool power, a little rude, but okay. And she offers to help him with his schedule. And she's, of course, conversing with him entirely telepathically, because if you can, why not? And then we see her eyes glow, and she says, you're welcome. And he's like, why? And she says, <laughs> for calling in the cavalry. And then we get this really adorable panel of Benjamin Deeds giving a real strong emo manic <laughs> pixie dream boy vibe. So Phoebe knows what's up immediately. Uh, this is the couple of the book. Here you go. Your story begins now. She's playing she's playing matchmaker. I really do love this origin of their coupling because it does feel perfectly high school. It feels like a scene taken out of like a John Hughes movie or whatever, or to all the boys, uh, that, that, uh, what to all the boys I loved before. Yeah. 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 The, the Netflix film. Love those. And, and Amal Carpino, that panel where Benji is introduced, you know, you, you said like emo where he, he has this just like very like meek defensive posture. He's uncomfortable in his skin. Here's a cute boy. And like, it's like you, it is a panel that immediately connects you with them because you've experienced that. It's such a vulnerable state to be in when you first bump into somebody uh, who's who's a little cutie. Yeah, where you're feeling a little swoony. Yeah. Do you think that it's love at first sight? Uh, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I think it's certainly like infatuation at first sight. I don't, we've discussed this a little bit in the past. I don't know if I necessarily believe in love at first sight. That's very interesting, Brad. Oh yeah, you got a statistic there, Lisa? What gave it away? <laughs> Your Tw tone of voice. 28% <laughs> of women and 48% of men believe in love at first sight. According to the normal bar, quote, the difference between the sexes actually aligns with other research no citation, that shows that men are more romantic than women, more likely to fall in love because of looks, and are more likely to feel love when there is extreme sexual attraction. Women tend to be more wary and most need to know more about the partner's character and background before they'll allow deeper emotions to develop smart women. You really should do, get some kind of background check. I have a question sure, here sure. talking about the validity of these answers to these questions. We've already talked about the validity of the test itself. But when you are answering a question like that, how do you how do you think cliche factors into answers, you know, traditional responses, traditional roles as, as they've been perpetuated through culture. Ooh, it sounds to me like you're onto something there. Like, keep going. Well, I'm just, I just think that we are products of the narratives we tell ourselves and narratives of that have been told to us. And so sometimes when you sit down at a questionnaire and you're filling out the answers, 
they might not even be the answers that you feel, but the answers that you think you should feel. Yeah, like you're meeting your own expectations with your answers as opposed to like really doing some soul searching for the for this online survey. Or not even your own expectations, but others' expectations. And when you look at characters like Nathaniel and Benji or just high schoolers in general, not characters, I think narrative is incredibly important and oppressive. It's funny because the normal bar book presents these results like, aren't you surprised? You would think that women would be the squishy, touchy, feely, lovey-dovey uh -huh. ones, but it is men, in fact, who are more likely to believe and love at first sight and, and fall head over heels really quickly. I think that might have something to do with the stakes when it comes to dating, particularly in heterosexual relationships. The stakes are a little bit higher for women for a couple of reasons. One... Women who perhaps fall in love too many times could be misconstrued as like promiscuous or there's like a mm. slut shamey element mm. to that. Also, I think that women do have to be more wary when they're dating a man because odds are they can kill you with their hands, sure. you know? Um, but I do think that there is something to like, particularly men who are interested in relationships to the degree that they'd like to take an online survey would love to see themselves yes. as the man yeah. in yes. a romantic comedy. And that's what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, if Benji and Nathaniel are not in love at first sight, they are definitely crushing hard at first sight. And um, according to the normal bar, <laughs> <laughs> believing in love at first sight does not necessarily lead to long-term happiness, though it does correlate with greater overall sexual satisfaction. So if you feel like you fell sure. in love with your partner at first sight, that sexual attraction can does sustain throughout the rest of your relationship, yeah. particularly in the ages of 45 to 54. So if you believe that your love is a love at first sight, um, that drop-off of sexual attraction is will not be as dramatic over the course of your relationship, according to the normal bar. Well, I mean, yeah, because what is love at first sight if not actually an intense sexual attraction? And think about that narrative that you're telling yourself over the course of your relationship, where you'll have this confirmation bias of, well, it was love at first sight, and therefore we have this strong, strong sexual attraction to each other. And so you're always telling yourself that story of, when I see this person, I feel things in my downstairs. So getting back to Benji and Nathaniel's meet cute, and after they have that, uh, first, you know, that, that first encounter, they do have like an awkward conversation. And what you can read through that awkward conversation is this bumbling teenageriness. And, you know, I think depending on the types of people that they are, that they would look back at this moment and could possibly say, we had a love at first sight moment. Yeah, we definitely had feelings right away. Yeah, and and as a reader, we see that there are feelings right away. You, yeah. You zero in on these two as a couple instantly. Particularly 
uh, from Benji's perspective because he has a little slip of yeah. the powers yeah. and he starts it's not uh, fair. He it's starts not fair. imitating. Yeah, like that's like the mutant equivalent to having to waistband it. <laughs> I was gonna say the same thing. It's so true. But it's worth noting that Morph's abilities, Benji's abilities are interesting and that they are beyond just the ability of uh, transforming his shape to look like somebody else's shape. He also has this ability called transformative psychochemical influence, which means he has the ability to cause someone to like him and trust him. Yeah, he has some kind of pheromone thing that right. puts people at ease. Right, and so, you know, if you had that power, I think that would also give you a trust complex, right? Because, like, does this person like me for who I am or because of this pheromone that I give off. So when you look at their first conversation where he has this moment where he slips up and he wishes he could waistband it, uh, you know, he also has to replay that conversation later. And when you're living the moment, you know, any teenager in that situation is gonna be fumbling through their feelings, but Benji's gonna be fumbling through those feelings even more. And later we see Nathaniel learn that yeah. aspect of his powers. And Nathaniel is also another person with huge trust issues. Yeah. And so he, in that moment, he doesn't trust himself. Yeah, and so both of them have powers that are invasive, right? Benji can make you like him and uh, Nathaniel can touch you and know way too much. He has like TMI all over you. That did that did not occur to me, and I find it fascinating. Well, it could, you know, for a certain couple, that knowledge could drive two apart, or you could recognize the pain that the other person must experience because of their powers, and it could solidify them as a couple. Well, Brad. Oh, no. According to the normal bar, <laughs> the more that they actually have in common, the better. The survey asked if people considered themselves more similar or different than their partners, and 55% said that they are more different in nature. Of the dissimilar couples, 75% fell into the slightly unhappy group. 45% who felt that they were more similar to their partner, 95% of them described their relationship as extremely happy. But let's keep in mind, these are self-selected groups. And if you hate your partner, right. are you going to be like, yeah. I'm just like that a-hole? Well, and, and, and if, if you love your partner, I think you tend to look at the things that make you similar. And I think that if you love your partner, you also become more similar over time because you are influencing each other. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, masters who look like their pets. <laughs> The normal bar suggests that... <laughs> You're just going to let that drop. Okay. Yeah, I am. I, I like pushing, it, though. Keep pushing. The normal bar then suggests that people who with different personalities and few shared interests may have more difficulty relating to each other as a couple than those who are very similar to another. But remember, like this is self-selecting, yeah, 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 self-reporting yeah, 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 yeah. group. So like... If you don't enjoy the person's company, yeah. you're not going to foster hobbies that you guys can do no, together. No, no. You are going to find ways to be apart. Yeah. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. And hopefully, ultimately, 
break up and find someone who suits you better. Now, in your average high school setting, uh, this awkward conversation that Nathaniel and Benji are having could be interrupted by a school bell. And they are saved by the bell here in Generation X, uh, but it's not a bell. It is Roxy being thrown through a wall by <laughs> Quentin Choir. A fight has broken out, and Nathaniel is in the middle of it. And this is also when he meets uh, iBoy and Nature Girl. But Quentin punches Nathaniel in the face. And when that fist makes contact with his cheek, he sees all of Quentin's memories, his tragic history. And remember, he feels that tragic history also. He's like the most, all, uh, like he's the ultimate empathy machine, uh, our, our boy Nathaniel. And he's, you know, like th this, this fight, this chaos, this weirdness that is this school is a little too much for him. He tells his teacher Jubilee, look, if I wanted violence like this, I could have just stayed in Texas. Jubilee pulls up her teacher pants and manages <laughs> to talk him down momentarily, <laughs> yeah. only to be undermined by a invading team of terrorists called the Purifiers. Yeah, they are uh, here to wipe out the mutant plague. So even though they might not be training to be X-Men, they are going to be constantly under threat if they're staying at this school in particular, which is in the middle of Central Park. The Xavier Institute is now in New York City. Which is so awkward considering that Central Park is already a product of gentrification. Oh, yeah, it's, it's like, all right, we, we can't go. I don't have time to get into all that, but it is weird and awkward and strange. They are being attacked by these racist jerkwads. Uh, and what you see in the next issue is a fight issue. And you also find out that really Morph and hindsight, Benji and Nathaniel aren't the greatest in a fight. And it comes down to the other members of their class to take care of the others, really. And that just causes further insecurity for these two. Nathaniel, as the new kid, actually reaches out to Benji like, hey, aren't you going to do something about this when they're trapped in the library with an active shooter? And Benji is like, what am I supposed to do? Morph in front of him into some kind of face that he still wants to kill because I'm clearly a mutant? In this fight, nobody in our class of Benji and Nathaniel and... Nature Girl and Roxy, none of them perform particularly well. It actually comes down to Jubilee and Chamber showing up and saving the day. And this issue actually ends with Jubilee breaking it to them that, hey, you guys are never going to be X-Men and we're just going to, you know, give you your basic skills and then release you back out into the world where you're on your own. And there are, like, Roxy finds that super offensive because she's wanted to be part of the X-Men, but Nathaniel is actually kind of relieved. relieved yeah. yeah. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about this series is how one issue ends and leads kind of perfectly into the next. And so where Nathaniel is in two perfectly sets up his revelations that he has in three, and actually, issue three is probably where I fell in love with the Generation X as a book because how it takes Nathaniel's doubt and his own like uh, confusion surrounding his powers and what value do they possibly offer uh, and 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 says like, look, no, 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 you you've got something special here. 
Strain does a great job of balancing each of these characters, where she, in the first couple of issues, sets up these really tremendous arcs for each of them, which by the end of the second volume, she fulfills and satisfies so completely. So even though we only get 12 issues, you do feel like you've gone on a full journey with the team. And every single character has grown and changed. And, and I think Generation X is what X-Men books should be, that balance of uh, you know, super heroics, you know, powers, punching, fighting, and teen melodrama. Like, this is what I want out of every X book, and you don't always get it. And Marvel's not always interested in delivering this type of book, but this is what I'm here for with X-Men. Me too. So issue three starts off in the Central Park Zoo, and iBoy and Nature Girl stumble upon the unconscious body of Face, a mutant that I really think is super interesting, and I want more stories around him. Uh, you know, when his powers originated, when they manifested it like melted off his his visage uh but he was also um uh, a product of this government agency called project progeny where they bolted this firing mechanism upon his face so he's been uh, forever surgically altered and abused by this agency before he ever came to the Xavier Institute. So they find his body. He's unconscious. They It's now a mystery. It's now up to the Scooby gang to figure things out. Initially, Trevor is like, Quentin, why don't you read his mind and tell us exactly what happened? But Quentin is like, he's blind, deaf, and mute, so I can't really see or hear anything. But do you know who can really get the inside scoop? Nathaniel, because Nathaniel can go into his mind and experience exactly what Face experienced. And Nathaniel, one, feels violated because that means Quentin read his mind to see exactly mm -hmm. the shape of his powers. And he also is, because of his past, super sensitive about accessing someone's memory experiences without consent. Which is why, up until this point, we've only seen Nathaniel use his powers by accident, including back in the library, he bumped yeah. into Andre and he saw something that planted a seed in his mind that we don't see play out until this issue. After Nathaniel has said he's not going to access Face's memories without consent, we see him helping Andre bring a bucket up the stairs, and we see him confirming plans to teach him to play Enchantment the Conjuring, which I guess is like a form of magic yeah. cards later. Nathan seems to bring up these magic cards a lot. Would you say that he's obsessed, Brad? Uh, yeah, I mean, like any good geek would be. Even addicted? Uh, I mean, I don't know. Do I have enough evidence to say he's addicted? I don't know about evidence, Brad, but 39% of men and 31% of women self-reported that they did, in fact, have an addiction. Men's self-reported addictions, from greatest to least, are porn, alcohol, smoking, marijuana, eating, technology, and playing video games. Women's addictions include, from greatest to least, shopping, vanity, alcohol, smoking, and prescription drugs. Keep in mind that these are not doctor's diagnoses. This is somebody taking a survey, 
maybe in the middle of the night, maybe after they've maybe enjoyed a little online pornography or perhaps put a couple things in their cart and they're like, I'm feeling weird about it. And so, yes, I have an addiction. I do not like the connect the dots you just made of watching online pornography and then putting things in my cart. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I like, okay, that's interesting. Again, I don't know if I can say any of that applies to Benji and his uh, Magic the Gathering cards or enchantment or whatever the heck they're called. I think it it's something we should be thinking about when we finally meet the villain of this story. Ooh. But I don't want to stray too far from the consent conversation right now because that Andre exchange is so important because when he bumped into Andre and he saw... Andre's experiences and he felt Andre's experiences what he felt and saw was this mutant who did not have any control over his abilities and he was eventually um, kidnapped by human society and lobotomized because of that lack of control and that experience convinces Nathaniel that he needs help with with his gift and he's going to stay here at the Xavier Institute. I think he also realizes some of the experiences other people have had because of their powers. And I think that he wants to help keep these things from happening, lobotomizations or these wild, yeah. like like what Face has been through with having yes. this, uh, yes. him his face turned into a weapon. Well, so exactly. So he decides, like, I... I, if, if you guys think that I can help in this situation, I want to help. But what's important is he does need to get consent from Face. And Face is able to deliver that consent through Morse code. Uh, iBoy, Trevor, is able to read uh, Face's Morse code. And Face says, hey, no, let's let's figure this out together. You can, you can use your gift on me. And when he does, this moment, this moment brought me to tears. Mm. Uh, you know, because he... He uh, uh, embraces face, and when he does that, we get three panels, three large panels on one page depicting face's entire experience with his gift as an inferno baby, with his face melting off when his powers originally manifested, uh, being kidnapped, being uh, tortured, and having this device planted onto his head. And the isolation that face experiences, you turn to the next page, and that's when we see, you know, the creature, uh, the person who kidnapped him. But what I love is after Nathaniel goes through this range of emotions with face, the two, uh, I, I, I just want to, I want to read the, I want to read you the actual exchange. It's, Please. It's, you know, Nathaniel, let's go. There's like a static zap uh, uh, effect there. He says, whoa, Benji comes up to him, like, are, are, you, are you okay? And Nathaniel says, I, I don't know, I think so, but face, he, and then we turn the page and the top panel is just Nathaniel and face embracing mm. in a hug. And I, you know, I love that Benji rushes to Nathaniel and says like, are you okay? And Nathaniel's like, no man, like it's not if I'm okay. Is face okay, having now lived his life, knowing really what it was like to be face and going, you know, like, I need to show this man that I love him. I just think about the tremendous relief 
that face must feel. Mm. Because yeah. we know from Quentin Quire that nobody else with telepathic abilities has been able to access his memories because he cannot see, he cannot speak, he cannot hear. Right, right. And you think, like, he has a condition for which the puzzle piece of Nathan's abilities perfectly fits. There's been no one else who's been able to hear, feel, faces, understand faces story. But then I think it also underscores how you how unique Nathaniel's powers are because we all know that when we have an experience, there is so much that goes on within us beyond what we can see beyond what we can even express in words. Right. So, you know, there's that cliche phrase of like to live in someone else's shoes. Right. Mm -hmm. So Nathaniel can do that in a way that no one else can. And I think that in 2021 where empathy has been such a um, hot topic has been such a driving narrative force in pop culture and in stories in general. I think a character like Nathaniel is so necessary, is needed. And I think there's just so much more opportunity beyond these two uh, trade paperbacks to use that character for some really rad, politically motivated, righteous comic books. We need Nathaniel in the X-Men front and center today, right now. Jonathan Hickman. <laughs> you know, we just had that X-Men election, right? Like, we should have had Nathaniel as an option. Absolutely. Especially when you pair his powers, ultimate en empathy, to his ethics. Like, I mm. don't want to invade other people's beings. I want to respect boundaries because I know that each person's narrative is something that is personal and something that is precious. Yeah, oh yeah, I love it, I love it, I love it. So this issue ends with them realizing that there is some creature that's in the sewers beneath the Central Park Zoo and they decide to go on the hunt. And it is quickly revealed that this creature is M-Plate or Monet. And I don't totally understand the background of how this character became, uh, how, how this character got into this situation. Um, I really am curious and I need to go back and read some more Generation X comic books, I think. Because apparently this has happened more than once. Right. And so what, what I understand is Monet, former member of Generation X, is possessed by her brother M-Plate. And as they are combined, they are feeding off the energy of other mutants. They're absorbing their energy. And their powers. And their powers. Of course, the youngsters snuck off without telling Jubilee or a, you know, a grown-up. And so when they have their ass handed to them, they don't think that anybody's coming to save them. But luckily... Jubilee and Jono figured it out and they saved the day and the ep and the episode. The issue ends with Jubilee trying to confront them and discipline them, but of course she she has a little bit of an empathy problem. She <laughs> she remembers what it was like to be a young mutant and have this compulsion to sneak out under the noses of the older generation. And to me, I feel like she totally fails at her little like like discipline like hey 
if you're going out, you should probably tell someone because you could totally die. Well, she relates too hard to it because she, this this was her life. This These kids are behaving the way she behaved. Her lecture just comes down to, like, if you're going to sneak out, be smart enough, one, to actually defeat the bad guy, and two, <laughs> not get caught by me because it feels horrible for me to catch you, you know, screwing up. And Nathan, I think partly because... He still has one foot out of the door of the Xavier school. He tries to do the martyr thing and like go like, it was my idea. This is all of my fault. Like if you're going to let, if you're going to discipline anyone, expel anyone, hint, hint, it should be me. But Benji steps up and is the one who goes like, we all followed him. Like, it may have been his initial idea after experiencing Face's experiences to go after the bad guy on our own, but we each went with him for our own motivations. Like, Roxy wanted to prove that she could be an X-Men. Uh, Quentin Quire wanted to do, like, ooh, people are being bad. I want in on this. So Benji was the one who supported Nathaniel and was like, Hey, we're in this together. That's right. We're a team. The following issue is mostly a Trevor and Lynn issue. And I mean, I like this issue a lot. I love the concept of iBoy and, you know, he's starting to see maybe a little too much or a little uh, too little. Like all the he can see naked people all around him. He can see <laughs> through their clothes and it's freaking him out and it's keeping him up. And he's got the bloodshot eyes all over his body. But I know there is a moment in this comic that you want to single out specifically regarding Nathaniel and Benji. We just get one really cute panel with them where Trevor is like on the couch and he can see like and they're just having like a fun spirited debate of the ring versus the Blair Witch Project. Yeah, the ring's better. Oh, yeah, me too. I totally yeah. agree. And I put that in my notes. I was like, oh, yeah. I can't remember who's on which side, but whoever said the ring, I'm with them. They're having a spirited debate, but Trevor can see through seeing through their skin the chemical reaction of them totally crushing on each other, which to Trevor feels, of course, completely invasive, but yeah. me, so sweet yeah. to see their little hearts glowing at each other. It's adorable. And their posture, like one of them is completely turned facing the other and the other's knee. Like if you have dabbled in reading body language, one has the knee pointed to the other. They're like totally vibing on every level. Jumping to the next issue, which I think is now issue six. Um, the, the next big story arc is kicked off by Nathaniel while they're in Dupe's class. Shout out to Dupe, the best mutant. Uh, check out my article on Shelf Dust this Wednesday uh, where I defend Dupe as the best mutant. Um, so while they're goofing off in class, because they're not really paying attention to Dupe, they're bad students, they're teenagers, uh, Nathaniel actually reaches out in a moment of frustration against Quentin Quire without his consent and touches him so he can see what's going on in that Quentin brain. And more specifically, what are Quentin's intentions with Benji? Like, what have those two guys been up to without me around? Of course, right after I'm like, hindsight, Scott, the ethics, Nathaniel is the ultimate X-Men. He immediately violates his own <laughs> ethics by invading yeah. Quentin Quire's brain. I mean, it's just, it's further evidence that we're talking about a teenager. Yeah, and, and he is making excuses. Like, he sees that 
Benji is exhausted and falling asleep in class. And he blames Quentin Quire because Quentin and Benji seem to have been spending a lot of time together and getting really close. Getting up to the hijinks. <laughs> and uh, class ends with Benji falling asleep while holding a pencil and stabbing himself in the own eye, which I've done, by the way. You have to get up so early as a teenager to go to high school. And I was a big time fall asleep in class person. That's why when you're in that state, you shouldn't be holding no pencil. That's right. Um, so after class, uh, Nathan goes to Benji and is like, you're letting your roommate, Quentin Choir, walk all over you. You should, if he asks you to hang out, you should say no every once in a while. And I think that Nathaniel is being a total jerk. Uh, yeah, but he's, I mean, what he's being is a jealous teenager. He's yeah. jealous. He wants more time with Benji. He's being super condescending though, because yes. he's like, you don't know your own mind. Like Quentin is a manipulator and you are just such a gentle soul that yeah. you're letting him and abuse you. I think he speaks that way because he's starting to get comfortable with his abilities and, you know, he's he's allowing his, his abilities to to bolster his own knowledge. Like he now is starting to think like, I know what's what because I've been inside Quentin's head for a second, you know? And so I think that's a dangerous aspect and I think he needs to check himself. And anytime you start to feel like, you know, what's what you're a hundred percent on the right of this concept, this idea, this situation, you need to immediately reevaluate why you believe that. And are you actually right? This might be an aside, but I wonder, like, if does Nathaniel's reading of someone depend on the narrative they're telling themselves in that moment? Like, oh, like Quentin's narrative. Like, right. is he actually experiencing the whole experience or is he experiencing the narrative that has been built inside Quentin's head? Because when we are in mm. a bad mood, we think about, okay, well, every decision I've ever made in my life has led up to this moment and this moment sucks and therefore I suck. I, I like that idea a lot. And if Nathaniel had his own series or had more time on other books, that is a element to his gift that should be explored and could reveal all kinds of juicy narrative bits. So after uh, he's been talking to Benji and going like, you shouldn't allow Quentin Quire to drag you all over town after curfew, Quentin Quire comes up and is like, hey, Benji, we've got plans later and I'm excited. And Benji wants to please Nathaniel. So Benji starts waffling on their future plans and is like, I don't know, I'm feeling pretty tired. And then Nathaniel invites himself Along, into yeah. his and Quentin's plans. Yeah, and so what are those plans? Oh, just to invade uh, an illegal weapons auction run by Cade Kilgore. They're selling off some nano sentinels. Yeah, good clean fun oh is gosh. what I think Quentin <laughs> Quire would call it. Yeah, nothing's gonna come wrong with this. Oh boy. What's super interesting about this situation that Quentin has put everybody in is when they learn that these nano sentinels could fall into the hands of some really nefarious villains. It's Quentin who decides we gotta do something and we gotta we gotta act now. Uh, and it's also, I mean, 
this is this is a key moment too because in their uh, concocting of this plan, Nathaniel learns that from when, Quentin from Quentin that when Benji morphs and takes the shape of another individual. He farts out a pheromone, to use uh, Quentin's words, that puts others at ease. And that that knowledge, like now Nathaniel has to question all his feelings that he has for Benji. Like, do I like Benji because I like Benji? Or am I being tricked by these farts? Nathan actually says aloud, like, oh, that explains a few things. And Benji is like... Like what? And Quentin just like rolls his eyes, which the entire class is doing at this point because both of them have made it abundantly clear that they're totally smitten with each other and neither one has done a thing about it. But the plan that they come up with is Benji is going to morph and take the shape of Andreas uh, Strucker, uh, one of the Fenri twins, and, and is going to pose as a buyer, right? We do have to take note that at this point in the story, I think it's the first time that Benji takes over as narrator. That's right. That's right. And we learned that Scott Summers, Cyclops himself, told Benji that he was not X-Men material. Rude. Not the first time Scott Summers has been a jerk. No, not the first time Scott Summers has been a jerk. <laughs> but I like, like I felt Benji's pain. Like the mm -hmm. idea of one of the founding members of the X-Men are like, you're never going to make it here. Like that's got to weigh heavily on Benji's soul. But... Quentin Quire, who is an Omega-level mutant, has just shown tremendous faith in him. And I think that that boosted his confidence enough to at least try. That, and I think he's trying to impress Nathaniel a little bit. Benji does get himself in a spot of trouble, though, because apparently the Fenry twins... They complement each other's powers by touching incestually, which is very creepy. Yeah, they're, they're gross. <laughs> Those Strecker kids, yuck. Ben momentarily poses as Andrea as a means of getting Andreas out of his clothes so that he can then put them on and then poses as Andreas. The second Andreas touches Ben posing as his sister, he can tell that's not his sister. <laughs> and um, Ben is like, oh no, but luckily... Zzz. Nathaniel bursts in with this dominatrix gun that Quentin Quire had stolen, and um, it gives them a nice moment where Nathaniel can give Benji a little bit of a pep talk. And he says, like, Ben, look at me. Listen, you've got guys like Quentin Quire wrapped around your little finger. You can do this. You are powerful. You are capable. Though I think it's interesting that Nathaniel throws in that he's got Quentin Quire wrapped around his little finger because Nathaniel is actively jealous. Actively jealous. <laughs> this gives Benji the boost of confidence that he needs. And then, but then Nathaniel goes to Quentin just to double check. Like, you guys don't have, I'm thinking of making some kind of a move. And you and Benji don't have anything going on, do you, Quentin? To which Quentin replies, there's nothing going on between us. I'd wreck him. Oh, and I believe him. And of course, Quentin sees right through Nathaniel going like, that's why you read my mind without consent back in the classroom. You didn't actually care that I was making Benji exhausted. You just wanted to know if... We were an item. And of course, you know, Nathaniel is 
mortified. He's embarrassed. But a lot of people, Brad, deal with jealousy. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Normal bar statistic. 23% of men and 40% of women experience jealousy. And there is actually twice as much jealousy amongst 18 to 24-year-olds, 55% than among people in their 50s, 24%. The normal bar didn't survey high schoolers, but I would hazard an educated guess of the uh, the percentage of high schoolers who experience jealousy, I'm, I would say it was probably around 100%. <laughs> but the only way to combat jealousy is to just speak to the other person and inquire about their feelings. Something that is incredibly hard to do, even when you've been in a relationship for as long as we have, mm -hmm. you know, talking about jealousy is difficult, but necessary. And when you're a teenager, like these characters, I mean, it's like the greatest hurdle ever, as is proven by the end of this issue. Of course, you know, the Sentinel's plan doesn't go like it should. It erupts into total chaos, punching, fighting, boom, boom, boom. But they save the day. Mm -hmm. uh, and when the issue ends... Quentin is encouraging Benji, just go out there, talk to Nathaniel, talk to Nathaniel, put your emotions out there on the line. And does he do that? Almost. Almost, but no. I just think like jealousy is something that you learn to deal with through failure. Mm -hmm. And like the first time you encounter it within yourself or within your partner, it, it, it's just not going to go well. And it's something that, you have to work through every relationship that you have. Like you have to start over from scratch every time you enter a new relationship and wade through the muddy waters of jealousy. I think that like being in a relationship with someone, it like throughout your relationship, you do many teeny tiny trust falls mm. where you go like, hey, like, what is an actress you find super beautiful, Brad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. like, so I, I try to put feelers out of there. Like, you know, should I, do you still find me physically attractive? Uh -huh. Like those kinds of questions. And it's, you know, and you're not going to bat a thousand on these teeny tiny trust falls that we do just because everybody needs a little sh assurance every once in a while. Everybody needs to have their their love affirmed. Yeah, and, and eventually like some of those jealousies, especially like on the actor front, be become like a reoccurring joke. Like mm -hmm. we cannot watch a Charlize Theron movie without <laughs> Brad getting an elbow in the ribs uh, yeah. at some point. It's just, that's just the way it's going to go. But who doesn't want a little piece of Charlize? That's what I'm saying. But the next big moment between Nathaniel and Benji doesn't occur until issue number nine after the mutant island of Krakoa rises in Central Park coming after Quentin because Quentin has been ignoring him. They're pals. Uh, and, of course, when Krakoa uh, rips out of New York City, causes chasms, Jubilee falls down into the sewers. We know that's where Monet is. Trouble is a-brewing. Chaos is happening. Uh, Nathaniel gets uh, a massive gash on his head. Which Benji compresses with his leather suede jacket. I don't think a higher wardrobe-related compliment <laughs> can exist. And the injury creates this opportunity for Benji to play play nursemaid for Nathan and they're back in Nathan's room and Benji is bringing him armfuls of chips and they're having heart to heart conversations about, you know, Quentin Quire loving uh, Benji as a brother and 
things seem to be, they seem to be vibing. And so Benji's like, this is my moment. I'm going to make my move. And Nathaniel cuts him off at the pass and yeah. says, like, you know what? I've been picking up on your signals, but with my set of powers, it's impossible to get close to anyone. And I love you as a friend. Yeah, rejected. Ouch. Do, do you think that Nathaniel using the friend bomb there is a little unfair, though? I think that he I think that he has been sending some really mixed signals and right after their little adventure with Quentin and the auction um Benji began to reach out for him and Nathaniel reflexively pulled back and I think Nathaniel has been kind of kind of focusing on that moment and the hurt that he caused Benji in that moment by pulling away. And he's like, I don't want to cause this kind of pain because I because I have this reservation. Well, he's got several reservations. There was that moment. There's also the moment that he's still, he, you know, about the farts. He's still worried about the farts, Benji's farts. Um, and he also has the past experience of relationships not working out when they share so much of each other. Like when Nathaniel gets your full experience through touch, it's kind of like rogue, right? It's kind of a similar fear where that knowledge can be so destructive to the trust between a couple. Nathaniel, we actually don't get a glimpse into what Nathaniel's been through until later when Everybody at school is going like, how come you two aren't together? We've been watching you flirt like awkward turtles for weeks now. Like, what happened? And so Nathaniel doesn't tell about his past to Benji. He says it to everybody else at the school. And it's actually Lynn who goes like, it's unfair to you for you to put your trust issues on, somebody on else. Benji. Yeah. Because just because everybody else had this reaction to you doesn't mean that Benji will. And Benji, because of his experience and because of his own anxieties around his pheromone farts, uh, he knows what Nathaniel knows. Like he he's had similar experiences and similar destructions of relationships because of that trust issue. I think that there is one distinct difference between rogue's situation and nathaniel's situation and it is nathaniel gets to experience somebody else's complete being their memories but it's a one-way street so it's literally impossible for anybody to know nathaniel as well as Nathaniel knows, knows them. them. Whereas Rogue, when she touches you, she's, uh, you know, effectively, she could kill you. She's poisonous to the other person. So the, like, the issue is not that Nathaniel doesn't trust Benji, but uh, mm, it is. It, like, he feels like Benji just would not have the capability of having that kind of disparity of information yeah yeah exactly but it's always tricky when you are being analytical about your relationship or a potential relationship especially a potential relationship and so he's trying to do the math so that he doesn't hurt benji so he doesn't hurt himself what has to happen is something tremendously emotional for that relationship to actually blossom into something and that 
that something is Monet attacking the school several issues later, uh, like the second to last issue. Yeah, several issues. We're jumping from issue nine to issue 86. Legacy numbers, you gotta love them. But <laughs> Monet is attacking the school and the school is crumbling. It's literally falling atop them. And Benji throws himself over Nathaniel, protecting Nathaniel. And Nathaniel actually has the gall to ask Benji, why did you do that? And Benji's response is like, seriously, you don't know? Roxy and Trevor are seeing the fight that's going on outside and says like, guys, I think we're screwed. I think we are all dead. And that's when Nathaniel realizes like, he does not want to enter the afterlife without having kissed Benji. And Nathaniel pulls a piece of cloth, a piece of fabric over Benji's lips and gives him a kiss. Even as you recount this moment in the book, I can feel my heartstrings <laughs> literally go taut. Like, I love this moment. And there's something in the normal bar book that is completely unsighted and is maybe even not true, but my brain really grabbed onto. And it's the idea that romantic gestures come out of two impulses, either the impulse to want to be loved more hmm. or the impulse to want to return love. Hmm. So I feel like the moment on the bed when Benji decided this is my moment to make a move, I think that was an instance where he wanted Nathaniel to love him more. And that of course was rebuffed and it was horrible. Uh, but this instance, like, I think that Nathan was so overwhelmed with gratitude, like a love romance level of gratitude. And fear. For the level, the, for the risk that Benji yeah. would take to protect his life, which instigated this um, barriered but totally romantic kiss. Yes, and what's super rad about that kiss is how it gives Nathaniel the courage to attack M-Plate, right? And when he grabs a hold of them, uh, he starts to see their experience, but because they are joined and absorbing his powers, they experience his experience. And because now M-Plate has Nathaniel's powers, they don't really want to touch anybody else because they don't want to be overwhelmed well, by everybody else's story. Yeah, and even though we already know a lot about Nathaniel's story up until this point, now getting the privilege to see his life in these flashes as it's experienced by M-Plate is very powerful. So when we see him being abused in the school, when we see his first awkward exchanges with a boy, like those moments hit all the more because of all the issues we've gone through up until this point. The final showdown is so cool because now M-Plate is infected by Nathaniel's abilities and how do they win the day? How does Generation X defeat M-Plate? They grab a hold of them and now M-Plate is being buffeted by all these emotional moments throughout their lives. And, you know, Husk takes a hold, Chamber takes a hold, and Jubilee takes a hold, and they see this tremendous amount of love. And that love for M 
separates the two. And M-plate, now spelled E-M-P-L-A-T-E and not M-plate. Not at all confusing on a podcast. Yeah, we didn't even get into that. <laughs> we should, probably should have. But now the, the two siblings are separated and M is free of her evil brother. Yeah, and the evil brother scrabbles off into the distance. Yeah, um, but I just think that the climax being this collage of life experience is really something you have not seen before in an X-Men comic. And I just want to hug this this book and I want to hug Christina Strain for making this scene happen. Yeah, it, I mean, it's the perfect reflection of, I think, our perspective on this podcast yeah. of like arm yourself with empathy yeah yeah weaponize empathy yeah and that's what nathaniel is he's he's empathy as a weapon and like we said he should have won the x-men election another huge event result of this is quentin choir uh gives up his phoenix shard oh, right. to jubilee who's has we mentioned she's a vampire we right have, now we have not yeah so now because uh, quentin gave up that piece of the phoenix shard during the battle it has freed jubilee from being a vampire so she's back to just being you know sparkle powers jubilee after the fray we once again find our two favorite x-men of the moment nathaniel and benji sitting on what I'm guessing is Nathaniel's bed because there are enchantment, the card, the conjuring <laughs> cards strewn everywhere. And Benji begins to tell Nathan how scared he was to take his pulse when he was unconscious because he wanted to respect his boundary by not making skin to skin contact. And I feel like this is Benji kind of, exploring Nathan's boundaries and trying mm. to express to him, like, I want to go into this relationship respecting your boundaries. I didn't think that, but that is what's happening. Yeah, you're so right on that. And Nathaniel replies saying, like, being with you at school is the safest I've ever felt in my entire life. And Benji replies by saying, like, I really want to kiss you. And Nathaniel kisses Benji completely barrier free skin to skin contact. And we get to see the flow of Benji's experiences and how hard it was for him to grow up with his powers flow into Nathaniel. And we feel comfortable that both of these two will be okay together because they have learned to trust each other through these 12 issues. We don't actually know how things are going to turn out for Benji and Nathaniel, but that's part of what being in relationships is. Just going like, you're worth the risk. You're worth my feelings possibly getting hurt or something about me I wanted to keep secret be exposed. Like, trust is not about knowing how things are going to turn out 100% of the time. Trust is an act of faith. Absolutely. And breath. Oh, no. According to the normal bar. One more trip to the normal bar. Trust matters. This is a quote. Among extremely happy couples, only 7% of men and women harbor doubts about their partner's honesty and fidelity. Only 39% of women and 53% of men trust their partners 
we try to be open and sharing and honest with our partners, but there is always a filter in between our brains and our sound holes. And like we've explored while we're talking about Nathan's powers that sometimes there are things going on inside of ourselves that we struggle to express in words and in, and in actions. 59% of men and 56% of women lie about their feelings or admit to lie about their feelings on a survey. But I think that sometimes it's not like we're lying about our feelings, but we're simplifying or categorizing our feelings as a way of trying to temper somebody else's reaction. Well, I mean, working through your feelings is a, um, it's a process and it's a practice mm -hmm. and it's something that you don't necessarily get right uh, uh, ever, ever. And so when you're taking a survey, like, can you, you know, <laughs> those end results are going to be different the next day you take the survey or the day after that and the day after that. 72% of unhappy partners choose not to share their true feelings with their partners. But 48% of extremely happy partners also lie about their feelings every once in a while. So happier couples... Um, do tend to lie less or um, claim to lie less claim to lie less, <laughs> but pretty much everybody claims to lie every once in a while. I think, I think in every relationship, including the one that we have, we have lied to each other about how we're feeling at some point in time. Mm -hmm. uh, because when you are going through uh, your feelings, as you're experiencing them, you yourself don't understand them mm. and you're trying to communicate that with your partner. And so you're writing a fiction to explain how you're feeling. Yeah. Or sometimes like when you're talking to someone, you're not going like, this is an act factual representation of what's going on inside me. Sometimes you say things just to control an outcome. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not putting a value judgment on that. Like, you know, if somebody asks you, Hey, how you feeling today? I'm doing and, good. And you say fine. <laughs> yeah, fine. Sometimes that's not because you are actually doing fine. Sometimes that is because I don't have the fortitude right now to deal with your emotional reaction to I me not being fine. I don't have the energy. Yeah. I, like we like we all have different relationships with different people and when someone asks you that question, like your friend asks you that question, you go like, "Oh, I'm fine. I've had a great week." And it's not true. You've, you, you're feeling miserable, but you just don't want to share that with that person. Or and sometimes then, with your partner, like they ask how you're doing and you go like, I'm not ready to process how I'm doing right now in this moment with my partner. So I'm going to put this piece of myself out right now. Part of me is fine. Part of me is not fine. We're not talking about that part, but I'm mostly fine. And I've noticed when I talk to my parents and my parents ask me, how are you doing? Uh, the emotion can be even more amplified because I know they have unconditional love. And now I'm going to unload both barrels <laughs> of all the hot emotions I've been experiencing this week. And suddenly they've just gotten a blast in their brain of all my anxieties that I have tempered or I have massaged or morphed when I'm communicating with you about them or with a friend. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you, you want to, um, 
control your your um, engagement with them. You go like, I want to be comforted, so I'm going to highlight the part of me that is not and, doing okay. And, and so those those things where like I tell my friend I'm fine. I tell you like oh, it's been a rough week, and then I tell my parents, oh my god, this has been the worst week of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, I I just th I think it's all interesting. I think I, I do think that all of those things are true though. Yes. That there is a part of you that is functioning. There is a part of you that's had a rough week, and there's a part of you that is absolutely miserable. But if we're talking trust, um, I think one of the things you have to trust in your partner is that you're not going to get the full truth of your partner's emotions every moment of every time, but you're trusting that uh, at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the lifetime, you're going to be working them all out together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No one is going anywhere. That's the trust. And if you don't feel that way, you need to talk about it. Did we just back ourselves into our final segment where we talk about what we learned from these books and how we're going to apply them to our relationship? I think so. I think so. We've covered a lot of young couples on this podcast, and sometimes you feel like, well, they're, what they're going through doesn't necessarily jive with what me and you are going through, Lisa mm -hmm. and Brad are going through. But I do feel like that I got a lot out of this particular couple through this story lens that relates back to me and you. I think I'm going to find myself thinking a lot about hindsight and the idea of yes. we are all operating, trying to communicate with each other through the filter of what can I express through gestures and what can I express through language to get the other piece, person to feel what I'm feeling. And you talked about it a little bit of like, you want to have your parents feel your level of anxiety. So you hype up the language to get that reaction out of them. And I think that, um, I think that we can add to our vocabulary as a couple um, to like go like, I'm putting this through my filter right now, but what I want you to get from this is I'm feeling this emotion. Yeah. Before we sat down to record, I was thinking about empathy and the power that hindsight has and what a gift and a curse that is and how you can apply it to your own everyday experiences. And even though I don't have the ability, the gift, the curse that hindsight does, taking the time to think about what has happened in your partner's life to lead you up to this moment? Mm. What are the many steps Lisa has taken to come into my life? And not only my life, but this day, this hour, this second. Oh, I love uh, that. And, and, and I, I think that is something that we're all very concerned about right now in pop culture and society is empathy. And like I said, you know, Nathaniel is the character of the moment. We need more of this character. And so I think I will be uh, contemplating Nathaniel's experience uh, a lot going forward. From the normal bar, I feel like I do like the idea of what is fueling a romantic impulse or a romantic gesture. I think that there is something to, am I doing this because I feel like I need to be loved more or am I doing this so that I can show love. I don't think that there's a value judgment. I don't think that there's anything shameful about 
needing love. I don't think that there's anything selfish about like show or anything like about showing love that is inherently mm-hmm. bad. But I do think that we do need to analyze our like when when we're making a romantic gesture, it's we understand that mm. it's a conscious choice mm. and we start to try to contextualize what reaction we want to get from our partner. So what, I, what I've enjoyed about this conversation that we've been having at the very end of this episode, talking about trust and making conscious choices, you know, this week for me and you, we've had uh, a, a several little flare ups. It's been a tense week. It's been a tense week. Right. And we've, we've had several heated conversations, heated discussions and, you know, in talking about it here on this show, talking about conscious choice and talking about like how you are choosing to relay fire off your emotions to your partner. Like, like what I've been struggling with this week is going like, okay, I'm falling into a brooding state. I'm mad at Lisa. I'm mad at myself. And how do I pull myself out of that state? And you know what I, again, what I love about hindsight is his ability to like really contemplate what the other person is going through. Mm -hmm. And so that has allowed me to go like, okay, I'm mad at Lisa. Why am I mad at Lisa? But why is Lisa mad at me? What is, what is she seeing in this moment? What is she frustrated with in this moment? And I think this book really did help me this week to press pause when I was in my most frustrated state. I also think there is value to, Asking yourself, like when you're doing something out of emotion, like there was a moment this week where I stormed out of a room and went into another room and I found myself thinking about like, what is the action that I want Brad to do that would satisfy me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was having the exact same conversation when you were doing that. And because then how did I, like you stormed out of the room and then I stormed out of that room. Another room. room. Brad put another buffer room in between us. So (laughs) we we were at the farthest ends of our apartments while we were at our most frustrated. And maybe that distance was good, but also stewing in that distance. And again, going back to the comic and thinking about like, all right, like drilling down to this moment. How did I get here? Uh Stewing there, thinking about, well, this is not what I want brought us back together. Yeah, and that thought of like I'm going to I'm going like this fight will end when I get this reaction out of my partner that I have not told him I want. <laughs> <laughs> like like I like we I had to tell him like what I really wanted when I stormed out of the room was an apology and then our fight would be over. Yeah, and guess what? That's how that fight ended yep. is you telling me that like what I want is an apology and I said what I want is an apology yeah and what did we fight over Lisa what brought us to this state this podcast guys yeah it did. you did <laughs> we care a lot about this podcast <laughs> and we want each and every episode to be great but it was like we had one of those weeks where it's just like everything that could possibly be a distraction I actively had a rash all over my face yeah and like, so, um, and my doctor was only doing virtual visits. So the middle of all of our recording periods, which is good. Virtual visits are good. They're wonderful. But like our recording times each were 
like shortened because I had to have a virtual visit with my doctor. Meanwhile, Brad was having these deadlines at work. Yeah. And I had uh, some family emergencies that I won't get into on this podcast, but we had some scary stuff happen, which was amplifying my intensity and freaking me out. Uh, deadlines at work isn't the right word. It wasn't that I had deadlines at work. Yes, I always have deadlines at work. I had deadlines at work and I was sucking so hard in my writing. That's what he, and, that's how he perceived. And that, that's how I perceived it. And when I am not satisfied with my my work, with my writing, I become a grumpy bear. And that's something that I'm working on, guys. Yeah. And so we were trying to record this episode and like, you know, a peek behind the curtain of this episode, we took like seven sessions to get to this yeah, point we're speaking at right now. We've never had a recording, a book take this many sits. Yeah, like we had to sit down like several and, times. And this episode was supposed to drop last Sunday, mm-hmm. not this Sunday. And that also adds to our intensity uh, and to our anxiety because we want to get this show out there. Yeah, but going forward, we have discussed like, what are ways that we can, you know, extradite this process without, like, you know, taking away from the quality of the content that we're putting out and all of that yeah, stuff? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, fingers crossed on all of that. <laughs> but what's important is that we reached a moment where you're on one side of the apartment, I'm on the total opposite end of that apartment, and you go, like, this is silly. This is not what we want. What do we want? And we both ask that question at the same time. And I don't know, like, reading hindsight necessarily made me ask that question, but the idea of exploring empathy, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it is sinking deeper and deeper into my head and I am adopting or not adopting, I'm adapting my philosophy to weaponize empathy. Yeah. And, and, um, putting yourself like the most valuable tool you can have is perspective. Yeah. And so like Nathaniel feels like the character I needed this week more than anything. And I, you know, because of that, I love that dude. That's so beautiful. I love that. Okay. So I don't know if we were necessarily planning to have that conversation that we just did. And I hope it's interesting. We gave our listeners a little bit of a hindsight moment. They got to see everything that made this moment happen. Uh, But I think we've covered all the points that we were supposed to cover in this episode. If you don't know, Generation X, Christina Strain, it's a brilliant book. I love it so much. I want more Benji and Nathaniel in X-Men continuity. Yes, please. Krakoa, what's happening on that island? I want to see it. But that's going to do it for episode three of our latest X-Couple arc nathaniel and benji next week will be our final x couple episode and we are returning to extreme x-men but not the chris claremont iteration we're covering that series many years later when it was spearheaded by writer greg pack the brain behind planet hulk one of my all-time favorite comic storylines so our final couple focus will be on the godly love affair between the alternate universe Wolverine known as James Hallett and the alternate universe version of Hercules as seen in Extreme X-Men issues 6 through 11. Yeah, this is a weird title, but I dig it and I'm super curious to see what Lisa thinks of these issues. I'm super excited. This is also going to be our last series of The Normal Bar And you think I've run out of things to complain about it, but uh, stay tuned. Okay, Brad, look at me. I look just like you. I've got Morphos powers. Oh, no. It's time to leave 
this episode behind and where all of my pheromone farts are. <laughs> And share our socials. Uh, you can find me on all social medias at Mouthdork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can yeah. subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and iTunes. YouTube would be great because we get like four listens over there. We pay no attention to YouTube. Like, we should do something with that. Maybe. If you'd like to get exclusive, <laughs> you can join our Patreon. Over the course of this episode, we have gotten more Patreon members. We see you. We appreciate you. We'll shout you out on the next pod where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. Yeah, we're going to be talking about WandaVision, which just wrapped up for this Sunday's episode. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, Ew. you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an act of service... Why not write a review of the show while you're there? They can be short and sweet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this week was great. Time Travel madman. Once again, thank you. We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. Until next time, guys, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy. I like your Mickey voice. Oh, boy. Oh, boy.